Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com. You are listening to Bloomberg Markets. I'm Carol Master in for Paul and Vani on this Monday. And a story last week that caught my attention, it talked about a speculative frenzy that's sweeping Wall Street and world markets. And among the things that this story highlighted was about special purpose acquisition vehicle SPACs that raise money for a blank check company to buy whatever it wants. They have raised over $60 billion this year. That's more than the previous decade combined. So it has been on quite a tear. Let's talk about it with our next guest, uh, Terry Kawaja, founder and CEO of Luma Partners Investment Banking. He joins us on the phone in Brasilia, Brazil. Uh, Terry, nice to have you here with us. Um, how are you doing? Uh, great to be with you, Carol. I think you nailed it with the adjectives speculative frenzy, <laughs> because uh, by their very nature, these vehicles are speculative, uh, because one does not know when one makes the investment in the IPO of these specs, you know, exactly what you're, what you're going to get. And when you mention frenzy, not only is it 60, billion, it's 85 billion at this point, that's probably a month out of day. This, this craze has been incredible, almost unmatched on Wall Street in terms of uh, underwriter volume. You know, that's what blows my mind. Like you're basically banking on the investor. And that's why when there's a hedge fund investor, well-known investor doing it, we're all like, ooh, ah, look at what they're doing. But you are basically banking on their investing prowess to get it right, right? Because you're basically giving them a blank check. Invest where you want. Hopefully it pays off. <laughs> Correct. I, I think, look, we, we did a, a, a Lumiskip, a, a market map of all of these different specs. There are over... 250 just in the class of uh, 2020 mm-hmm. uh, that have, uh, you know, and there's still of those set, 175 are still looking for targets. They have $65 billion in cash. They'll lever that up to, I don't know, three, $400 billion worth of enterprise value of targets. And therein lies the rub, right? I think uh, we're going to have a scenario where we're going to look back at this and put it under the lens of the good, the bad, and the ugly. The good is that this is a vehicle to help companies do accelerated IPOs, and that's great. Right. Uh, Lord knows we need more public companies. The bad, of course, is that we're clearly going to see some commoditization with you know so much money chasing uh, companies. We're going to have a demand-supply imbalance, and that ought to commoditize the returns for the sponsors. Uh, and then the ugly... Uh, is I think relates to what might happen to public investors in this sector should all of that money cause them to go after lower and lower quality targets that perhaps are on the uh, edge of whether they're suitable to be public companies in the first instance. Well, well, that's what I keep thinking about, Terry, is, you know, we have for the last couple of years just talked about the amount of money that's out there to invest, the amount of money to go into startup companies, the amount of money that's been able to go into uh, startups and that have been enabled them to stay private that much longer. I mean, there's a lot of money sloshing around. It does feel like, and I don't know if I'm getting this wrong, because the IPO market is also part of this kind of speculative mm-hmm. frenzy this year, but it does feel certainly different from 1999. Um, how do, do you see them kind of the same, the frenzy in IPOs, the frenzy in SPACs this year kind of the same beasts, or are they different? 
Well, uh, I'd say they're similar, uh, in, but the companies that are able to go public in and of their own right tend to be higher quality, right? I mean, yes, uh, the SPAC can be utilized to accelerate a go-to-market, but if you're, uh, if you're a quality uh, company, remember that there is a cost associated with that accelerated speed to the public markets, and that is the dilution that you will experience, your, your shareholders will experience, uh, because of the 20% of the SPAC that the sponsor gets for free, basically. So that promote that the sponsor has uh, will, in fact, I mean, equity is a zero-sum game, mm-hmm. so their gain is, is, uh, is essentially a dilution to the other shareholders. So it has to be worthwhile. And you, uh, I think, struck a, the correct chord at the outset, which is it is going to place an extreme uh, of focus on the quality of the SPAC sponsor. I think when you get to $85 billion of issuance, everybody and their sister is doing a SPAC. My dentist, you know, uh, uh, receptionist is doing a SPAC. Everyone's doing a SPAC right. in 2020, but not all of them will, will be successful which puts all the more uh, importance on uh, analyzing the quality, both in terms of, you know, operational expertise, strategic uh, um, uh, oversight, uh, and as well the network so that they can, uh, you have some sense of assurance that they can not only find a good target, but they can convince them that their sponsor group has more value add than, say, XYZ SPAC, and therefore they don't have to compete. So... I mean, what is it about this year that all of a sudden SPACs, you know, they're not a new new vehicle, like they've been around, but what was it about this year in particular? Was it just the cheap money floating around again or what? Yeah, I, I think there is certainly a lot as it relates to, you know, demand outstripping supply. Yeah. But historically, whilst, whilst the, the SPACs have been around, I mean, they've been deemed somewhat Audrey, right? I mean, you know, they were kind of fast money vehicles and the like. Uh, but now not only do we have quantity, yeah. but we have quality. So A-list investors, you know, Michael Klein, Tramath Palihapitiya in technology, I mean, uh, ex-politicians, uh, athletes, celebrities, everybody's getting in on it. But, but I would really want to focus on folks that know the industry well or right. well-networked that are likely to be able to find right. a good target. Well, and I think about a conversation. We've got to wrap up here, but I do think about a conversation I had with uh, two individuals long time in the restaurant industry, and they had a, a SPAC, and it was just about looking at the, real, uh, the restaurant property specifically. It was an industry they really, really knew, and they were out to uh, make some acquisitions. Um, we're going to leave it there. Terry, thank you so much. Terry Kawaja, he's founder and CEO of Luma Partners Investment Banking, joining us on the phone from Brazil. Brazil. We'll check out the Bloomberg terminal, Bloomberg.com, and you'll find this Bloomberg opinion piece. It's taking a look at student debt. It's about $1.7 trillion. It is up from $250 billion back in 2004. Student loans, they are now the second largest slice of household debt after mortgages, bigger than credit card debt. While writing about it and about the possibility of forgiving student loans, she says it is not a lasting solution. Let's bring in Claudia Salm. She's founder at Stay at Home Macro Consulting. She's also a former Federal Reserve economist known for creating 
using the SOMROL, a recession indicator. And she joins us on the phone from Washington, D.C. Claudia, nice to have you here with us. So tell us about this column. I feel like for years, uh, you know, we've been talking about this mounting student debt. And there is a possibility that President-elect Joe Biden could issue an executive order to cancel a portion of it. You say, and you remind us, this isn't necessarily something that's going to have a lasting or longer impact. Right. Yeah. And first of all, thank you for having me on today. And I am so heartened that this discussion about higher education and the affordability of it has become one front and center in the Biden administration discussions, largely because they likely face a divided Congress and they have to think really hard about the tools that they have via their disposal of an executive order or just running the federal agencies better. So I think this is important. I understand why student loan debt forgiveness has been the centerpiece, what kicked it off, right? Like a lot of people would like those debts forgiven. And yet I think this is a moment to make sure that we have a bigger conversation about why we got into this mess and why we have millions of Americans who start higher education, whether it's certificates or bachelor's or master's, and never finish, right? That is a huge problem. Well, this is what I love. Listen, this is so, you know, I hate to think about, you know, a college education and thinking about the financial impact when you come on the other side, but it's a reality, especially, you know, Claudia, when we see a lot of students getting degrees and then struggling in an occupation potentially where they can't pay back all of that student debt. And I know the Obama administration made some steps towards this, creating that college scorecard. I have a daughter who's 17. We're looking at colleges. I'm, you know, having these conversations with her about what are you going to study? What are you going to do? so that you think about on the other side. But we do need to kind of think about this. This is, to unfortunately, has become, because college educations have gotten so expensive, a business proposition. Right. And I think I've looked at this often from the lens of thinking about the mortgage debt crisis, because mm-hmm. I was at the Federal Reserve during that time and thinking about consumers and household finance. And that is not necessarily bad. It depends on the return you get on that debt. For many, many students, getting higher education is what launches them into a better career, often a better career than their parents or grandparents had. But for students who do not finish or do not get a high-quality education, they leave with no better earnings than they came in and a lot of debt, right? So it really depends. And to your point about the college scorecard, the intention of that is to get good information out so that parents, students, people working, coming back, to education later in life, that they select institutions and select programs that have that high return on investment. Right. It's something to but think But I of- don't think the scorecard's enough. Well, right. I applaud you for using it, but like just information isn't going to cut it. Well, give us give us your checklist of what you think a Biden administration needs to do to make this to deal with this, because the numbers have gotten out of control. I feel like all of the numbers uh, associated with getting a college degree, the cost, uh, the process of getting there, um, like a lot of it has just gotten out of out of control. So what would you say that a Biden administration needs to do when it comes to student debt specifically? So the most important thing is they have to focus on and deliver on accountability, right? So all three of the proposals that I talk about in the piece, the college scorecard we already talked about, getting information, taking a really hard look at what these schools are delivering and not pulling punches. And the other two are much more directly accountability. So one is what was on the books as a gainful employment program. Secretary DeVos has walked this back 
to some extent, although made some good arguments about why it wasn't good enough, in that it was very focused on private for-profit colleges. And I firmly believe, and I agree with her on this, and researchers across the political spectrum do too, you got to hold all institutions accountable. I talked with Professor Jordan Matsudera in the speech, or in the, in the piece, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. and he said what he thinks is important, having studied this while he was at the Council of Economic Advisors, is that you should do it program by program. Institutions is too broad of a blanket. Because there are public institutions that deliver some great education and they have some programs that really shouldn't be there. And they're getting funding from the federal government through these student loans. It is a huge stick for these universities and other institutions if you say you won't get our federal loan dollars, right? And so that's important. And the last one I touched on, which is absolutely not sexy, and I would understand <laughs> that they wouldn't put this front and center, right. is the mortgage or the student loans are serviced by private companies. This was the same thing that happened with the mortgages that not paying attention to them and holding them accountable caused problems over a decade ago in the mortgage space. And it is, it is causing and will continue to cause problems in the student loan space. We have forgiveness programs on the books that like a handful of individuals have qualified for. And part of it is servicers are not motivated to tell students the debt about this. Yeah. That has to stop. No, listen, I remember, like I said, when that first headline once came out, I think when was it was it when student debt hit a trillion dollars and doing a story mm-hmm. and, and talking to people who had student debt and, you know, their wages were being garnished because of, depending on whether they had private yeah. loans or stuff. I mean, it's just really problematic. And we need to kind of all go in this eyes wide open, uh, if you will, mm-hmm. and some changes. Um, how likely, just got about 30 seconds here, how likely do you expect something to come out of the Biden administration when it comes to student loans? Well, this is a lever that they have, and they're going to have to use it, right? They're going to not have a lot of levers they'd like to, putting out hundreds of billions, trillions of dollars through Congress. This one they can do. I just want them to take an and-both approach and look at a lot of tools, because that's what success will depend on. Yeah, exactly. Right. Multifaceted uh, to get something done. Uh, Claudia, thank you so much. Really appreciate uh, your time today. Claudia Sam, she's founder of Stay at Home Macro Consulting. She's a former Federal Reserve economist known for creating the Sam rule, which is uh, an indicator of the recession. But listen, student loans, it's been a problem for multiple years and certainly something that will be facing the Biden administration. All right, you are listening to Bloomberg Markets on this Monday. I'm Carol Masser in for Vani Quinn and Paul Sweeney. Want to get into what were some of the hottest jobs and top paid skills of 2020 in a market environment, in a jobs market where we know some folks didn't feel too much pain because of the pandemic and others really dealt uh, a big, big blow when it came to the virus impact on their jobs and their ability to make a living. So let's see what uh, the CEO of Payscale is seeing. Scott Torrey is with us on the phone from Seattle, Washington. Scott, great to have you here with us. How are you? Good morning, Carol. I'm fantastic. Uh, thanks for having me. Well, it's good to have you here with us. Um, talk to us a little bit about your reflection back, first of all, and what you guys are finding about 2020, because it was a strange year, to say the least, a difficult year for many. Uh, but that didn't mean some people, in terms of their jobs and uh, their occupations, they were in demand. They were. Uh, Dickens was rather prophetic. It was the best of times and worst of times in this market. 
And I have to begin by thanking uh, the millions of people that, that came to Payscale to share this data that makes our job trends and skills report possible. And here's a couple things we found. There are some particularly fast-growing jobs in, in terms of both wages uh, and other metrics. Health screeners up 136%. You see them out uh, and about every place you go now. The number of personal shoppers and the wages associated with them have gone up 125%. But, Kara, one you may not know about is RV technicians. <laughs> Their wages are up 97%. Actually, that does not uh, surprise me because we know, and from a lot of the conversations I've had with you know individuals, certainly in the leisure industry or our travel, you know, people didn't get on planes, people didn't go to big hotels, people wanted to go, a lot of people were buying boats, campers, you name it, where they could be away from people. For sure. And it's, it's a good example of kind of the resiliency and people pivoting to what, what we can do instead of always confronting what we can't. Well, it's interesting. So what about the labor trends, Scott, that we're seeing here in 2020? What does it, if anything, tell us about what we might see in 2021? Because I do think in, you know, we've said this a million times, in, in eras of crisis often comes out of it innovation, but sometimes that also means disruption in terms of jobs needed or jobs needed no more. <laughs> so I do wonder what that means for 2021. Listen, I think there are two fundamental trends that come out of 20 that are not going away. One is the pivot that many companies are confronting uh, with remote work. Um, and for those, those uh, areas of the economy that can work remotely, an increasingly high percentage of companies are choosing to do so, whether they go 100% remote, hybrid, or partially, or they bring everybody back because that's the culture that they need, that trend and confronting that trend is something uh, every company is going to have to deal with. The second is the, the shift we've seen, certainly with the social trends, with uh, the trends associated with Black Lives Matter, mm -hmm. and the drive towards pay equity and transparency of that pay equity is a trend that will, will last well beyond 2020 and should last well beyond 2020 because it's the right thing to do. Well, okay. And I do wonder, because we've talked also about women, um, you know, women leaving the workforce because of the pandemic. Um, you've seen some of the numbers that are out there. Women who are no longer, you know, in that in that pipeline with P&L, profit and loss responsibilities that they've been taken out. I do wonder how much of the gaps, the inequities, that ultimately there are some deliberate actions to kind of make up for lost ground, whether it's women, whether it's minorities. Well, I think there are a number of steps, and certainly within uh, with our company, we're taking deliberate steps to ensure that that everybody has uh, an opportunity. And these are particularly trying times. You mentioned women and, and the the concept of working from home, uh, having all the challenges of working from home and not having a, a place to go to get away. Uh, those are really difficult times, and we are seeing that in the data uh, in terms of attrition of this wonderful talent uh, that we need to bring back uh, to have an impact on our economy. But there, there are so many things we can do. One of the things we encourage folks to do is really get out and ensure they have the data to drive these effective decisions. So uh, Payscale has a, a partnership with the USC Race and Equity uh, Program to really help companies look at this data, assess this data, and get ahead of the trends. Uh, because the legislation will come, but it's really the important social uh, uh, pressure that will, will be put upon us. But more importantly, this is talent that you need. It's the talent that will make your business better, uh, and you need to continue to attract it and retain it. Right. It's so basic. We've all seen the research and you know the importance of diversity and uh, DNI when it comes to uh, your staffing. Hey, just got about 30 seconds left here. Compensation, how is it changing forever in 2021? 
Uh, what's changing forever is the idea that you can work from anywhere. And okay. what does that really do for for different employers? People are going to have to be looking at what skills do I need to be effective? Where can I find those skills? And seize this as an opportunity diverse, to use this to diversify your talent pool around the world. But in terms of compensation, what changes? Just very quickly. Uh, they're going to be, in certain industries, they're going to be going up in a very high way. And, and until we get the pandemic under control, there'll be challenges in those industries that are struggling the most. All right. Should be a, an interesting year. Scott, thank you so much. Going to leave it on that note. Happy New Year. Scott Torrey, he is a CEO of Payscale. He is the CEO, I should say, at Payscale, joining us on the phone from Seattle, Washington. So this story definitely caught our attention. It has to do with arbitration and, uh, as I said earlier, coming to a doctor and medical practice near you thanks to private equity. So it is among our most read stories on the Bloomberg. It's written by Heather Pearlberg. She is private equity reporter at Bloomberg News. She joins us uh, on the phone from Baltimore. Heather, man, this is a like story everybody should read in its entirety and really get through the details. So tell us about... Um, Jesse Harrell, and tell us about what she recently did and what she found out. Sure. Thanks for having me, yeah. Carol. So, yes, yeah, so Jesse Harrell's a lawyer in Florida who took a binding arbitration agreement all the way up to the state Supreme Court and won. Didn't know that in the meantime, the medical practice that was trying to force patients to sign this agreement. Um, had bought her own doctor's office, and then when she went for her annual appointment, they asked her to sign the same form. Right, and this so is a she doctor kinda, she'd been going to for years, right? 14 years, delivered her first child. It was an OBGYN, and his entire group had gotten acquired by the same private equity firm that's huge in Florida. Well, well, talk to us about this. You know, we talk about binding arbitration, right? And we've talked about this a lot when it came to um, harassment suits or, you know, pay disputes between men and women on Wall Street. And all of a sudden, we, you know, it's come to the forefront that there's lots of these arbitration agreements that basically individuals kind of give away, not kind of, they give away their their right to sue. uh, And all of this stuff happens behind closed doors. This is a relatively new thing for the medical community. It's been happening for a little while, but it was very specific, and now it seems that it's cropping up way more in certain specialties, like gynecology. Lawyers would say high risk, where doctors are more likely to get sued, plastic surgery, and you see it a lot with these private equity-owned nursing homes as well. Well, how much is the private equity world, Heather, you know, tapping into the medical world increasingly when it comes to investments? It's huge. I mean, huge. private equity has been investing in every corner of healthcare, and it's just becoming more and more common, whether it's hospitals, doctor's offices, eating disorder clinics, name it. I mean, they're everywhere. And we've been reporting on the impact of, you know, that some of this is having on patient care, whether it leads to them buying cheaper supplies or pushing more procedures. And this story really looks at, at more of how they're bringing their legal prowess to medicine um, and how it really does have a a large impact on patients and and the rights they're forfeiting. Right, exactly. And you make the important distinction, Heather, that there is arbitration, which some people can think can be a good thing in terms of, you know, leading to agreements, but then there's binding arbitration, which takes it to a whole other level. Right. There's a lot, there's been a lot of tort reform and it kind of varies state by state. And in most cases, uh, 
when it comes to malpractice, the patient and a doctor would go into arbitration after a dispute occurs. In this case, when we're talking about binding arbitration, this is a form that people are signing before they even see the doctor. So they're giving up these rights before anything ever happens. And in most cases, people don't really realize what they're signing when they go into a doctor's office. I'm guilty of it, too. I get right. a stack of forms. I'm like, okay, I just want to see the doctor. I'm signing this. I'm signing this. So, yeah. you know, there's a real question, especially considering these groups are using a binding arbitration agreement that was already you know, considered void by the Florida Supreme Court that, you know, that there's some sort of patient intimidation or, you know, other issue going on because the patient's signing these forms, if they do know what they're signing, are assuming that they are valid and enforceable. So they're much uh, less likely to sue or, you know, find a lawyer when they are uh, injured. Right, exactly. And it's interesting, as you say in your story, Heather, it's said even though the document is not legally enforceable, there's nothing preventing the company from asking patients to sign it and refusing to treat them in the future if they don't. To be fair, 30 seconds left here, what do the private equity firms say? Well, they would say that this has nothing to do with their ownership, that mm. it's the doctors who have these agreements with the patients. Um, and in reality, the doctors, once they join the group, have to agree that all of their patients, you know, will be required to sign this. So, sure, the doctors have a little bit of a choice, but, um, you know, if you're a retiring doctor and you're about to join this group with 90 of your colleagues, I don't know that you're going to just give up your job and start over because you don't want your patients to sign this form. It's, it's a little bit of a false choice. Yeah, it's just really kind of uh, shocking. <laughs> Heather Perlberg, great story. Private equity reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone from Baltimore. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Bonnie Quinn. I'm on Twitter at Bonnie Quinn. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio.